Thatcher Wine is a successful entrepreneur, dedicated father, and cancer survivor. He's the founder and CEO of Juniper Books, a company based in Boulder, Colorado, that specializes in custom curated libraries and designing special edition book sets. Thatcher's work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Architectural Digest, El Decor, New York Magazine, on CBS Sunday Morning, and numerous other media outlets. And today, we're going to chat about his exciting new book titled The 12 Monotasks. Do one thing at a time to do everything better. Thatcher, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I love your book. It's such an interesting concept. I think we all could benefit from this particular concept of monotasking. And the title is The 12 Monotasks. So like every great journey for, for our guests on My Buddy Green, there's usually a health journey and you had a pretty serious health journey. So let's start there and talk about your journey and how it led you to writing this book. Yeah. So a few years ago, I'd always considered myself a, a pretty healthy person, very active, but I had this longstanding issue with headaches, chronic headaches, and I didn't know where they came from. And I, I literally had them for like 10 years <laughs> at least. And I got serious one year about looking into what was causing them and got every diagnosis under the sun. I think some of the listeners are probably familiar with that. Any specialist you go to says, I know what's wrong with you. You just need this injection or this prescription or this surgery and nothing worked. And eventually I found a doctor who really took the time to listen to me, who was a headache specialist. And we figured out that I actually had a spinal fluid leak right above my left eye and went through a surgery, kind of went in through my nose to patch that up and eventually stopped the headaches, but only after about a year of some pain from the surgical site and some trouble with my vision. And I'm a very avid reader and bookseller. So it's kind of a big deal for not really being able to look at a book or look at a screen for a long time. And kind of got through that, slowed down a little bit, but maybe didn't get the full message of what I could, what adjustments I could make in my life to have some work-life balance. And a few months after I had recovered from that, started having a different pain. And after looking into what, what was causing that, it turned out I had, so I had three tumors in my chest. It's called primary mediastinal non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Went through pretty heavy duty chemotherapy for about a hundred hours a week, uh, times six rounds of that. So I kind of had those two health challenges back to back. And, and I should say the health, the headache issue. So probably I had that for 20 years. It's probably caused by a surgery I had when I was in my twenties. So kind of figured these things out. They slowed me down. Fortunately, they were treatable and I was able to recover from them. But no sooner had I recovered from cancer or gone through the treatment for cancer, I should say, than I, w I went through a divorce. And this whole time I was an entrepreneur. I'd started a business way back in 2001 and was trying to be a good parent too. My kids right now are, are 12 and 15. So they were a few years younger. So I was really trying to like do it all, right? Run a business, be a good parent, take care of my health, keep up appearances, to be honest, like really make it look like I was, I could handle it. Um, and part of handling it to me was not slowing down. Um, and being inspiring to other people, being an optimist as I always had been. And I got to the point where I just, I couldn't do it. And I think I also realized at the same time that I never really took on as much as I was taken on um, during that period 
in the past. Like I, I kind of looked back as I was going through all this and I figured out that the solution to, in my life, at least to working my way through everything and getting it done and being really creative, really successful, really productive and really present wasn't about like multitasking all the time and showing how I can just be the, the ultimate at doing lots of things. It was really about slowing down and about doing one thing at a time, doing it well, then moving on to the next thing. And if some things take a little bit longer, I'm okay with that. So I, I decided to take my own experience and do a little bit more research into mindfulness, neuroscience, productivity, and put together a whole philosophy about monotasking. And the book is a result of that. At peak unbalance, if you will, when you were just running yourself into the ground, what did that look like in terms of what was a day in the life? Could you paint a picture of what, because I think there are probably listeners and including myself, I've had periods of my life where I think we could probably identify. And so if you could just walk us through what that looked like. And I should say like what it felt like is just complete exhaustion. <laughs> that was kind of the overall umbrella, but you don't want people to see that. So what it actually looked like, I'd wake, I'd basically wake up earlier and stay up later than everyone else. I would have really long to-do lists. I keep track of things on a lot of post-it notes, <laughs> you know, just a lot of post-it notes everywhere all the time. And a lot of feeling like I never got to the things that were on those post-it notes. So for my life, waking up, waking my kids up, getting them breakfast, getting them off to school, taking care of the house, starting to answer a bunch of emails for my business, having a bunch of meetings and just kind of going all day long at pretty high speed, trying to squeeze in a little bit of exercise if I could. I love to bike and hike and practice yoga. Even though I was exhausted, I try to like pack that in and see maybe it made me feel better. Made me, it made me even more exhausted. So yeah, it's pretty much what it looked like at that point. And so multitasking, you know, I think we all know it's not good for us, yet we all do it. Guilty as charged, at least me. I think I'm getting better, at least I'm trying, but, but we all do it. Can you talk a little bit about what you found in doing your research on what it's really doing to us and how it led you to this philosophy of monotap? So only about 2% of the population can actually multitask, like take on two cognitive tasks with their attention at the same time. We're in the other 98%. <laughs> I'm like customer, listener, reader, number one for my own book. So we all try to multitask. I think when people hear that statistic, they think, oh yeah, I'm in the 2%. Like I can do it. Some people, other people are like, oh, well, this is kind of permission. I now I know why I can't multitask. And what multitasking tends to do is, first of all, if you're doing some work um, or if you're listening in conversation, like you tend to make mistakes. You don't get everything. So you do poor quality work. And if you're doing two things, neither of them is done as well as if you had done one thing and then the other. And then I think there's also this intangible that, that hasn't been studied as much um, about this feeling of stress and being overwhelmed and not quite knowing where it comes from. Because you might have these like great opportunities that you're multitasking. They're all exciting. They're all creative. They're all financially rewarding, but you just, you don't feel good. And I think a lot of that comes from not being present in, in doing one thing at a time, no matter how good those things are for you. Without completely crapping on technology, I do think technology has contributed, including podcasts like ours. 
like, I, I think most people listen to podcasts while in, in a passive manner, they're driving, they're biking, they're commuting. So is that, are we all guilty? Are all of our listeners, including myself, guilty of multitasking? Is that considered a multitask if you're listening to a podcast and cleaning your house? Or is that just like good old passive stimulation? Yeah, I think, I think it's, I don't think there's anything really wrong with it, to be honest. Okay, I think good, you can, good. you can do things in the background, like listen to a podcast or listen to music while you fold the laundry in the foreground, put away the dishes, drive to work. Are you, I think it's more about like figuring out what's your primary task and what's your background task. So if your background task is listening to a podcast, you're probably not going to catch a hundred percent of it. And some people would say like, you were never going to get a hundred percent to start with. <laughs> That's just the nature of the human attention span. But I think if you do bring some awareness to what are you tasking, how many things are you combining into a particular moment and then break those things apart and give it a try to do one thing at a time. Like listen to this podcast as if your life depended on it. See what that feels like <laughs> and then selectively add things back later. So if you just have some awareness of multitasking versus monotasking, then you can make really good decisions about where to provide, where to put your attention. I love that. I love that. And, and so what you've done in the book, I love the simplicity of it is you've identified these 12 monotasks and, and we're not going to go through every one, but I'm just going to run through them quickly and we'll pick out some of my favorites. So you've got reading, walking, listening, sleeping, eating, getting there, learning, teaching, playing, seeing, creating, and thinking. And so we have to start with reading. First of all, like before we got, we got to do some context setting. Can you share a little bit about what you do? Cause what you do is extraordinarily cool. And I think <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and, and it segues to reading and your passion for, for books. So can you just share what you do professionally? Yeah, absolutely. So 20 years ago, I started a company called Juniper books and I'd always been a lifelong book lover, reader book collector to a certain extent. So I started buying and selling books. And fast forward a few years, somebody asked me to curate a library for them. And so there's this whole part of our business where we basically curate book collections for clients. So they'll hire us and they'll say, hey, I've got these, you know, X number of bookshelves in my home. And my wife and I, we love these subjects. And our color palette for the home is pink and blue. Can you put together a library for us? So we do these like really cool book collections that are not only great libraries of readable books, but also look beautiful and look like they belong in a home. We just customize them in a way that nobody ever in the history of books thought of doing before through these custom book jackets that we make. And then we have a whole other product side of the business where we make special editions. And those include like seven different types or variations on a Harry Potter design for the hardcover edition. Lord of the Rings, The Wheel of Time is super popular right now. Um, Jane Austen, Ernest Hemingway, you name it. We've got like 300 different sets. And they're really fun. And, and the way I describe it, I could say, oh, we're a bookstore. Leave it at that. But I basically say we help people tell the story of who they are across their bookshelves. Because the books we keep on our shelves are a very like intentional, conscious choice about the story we want to tell to other people that come into our homes or see our background on Zoom or something. So we help people tell that story through the books on their shelves. They, they look beautiful. And, and I love your passion for the physical book. I love my Kindle, but there's something about that, that physical book. And, and the, to, to look at your work, there's a beauty. And, and look, it's perfect feng shui. 
if you can do it right, it's <laughs> yeah. feng shui gold. And so we'll come back to reading. So how can we, one, how do we know if we're reading wrong? We all read, all our <laughs> listeners read. Let's start there. How are we reading? I don't think there's a right or wrong. I think if you're reading, you're doing it right. And I think reading, when I thought about this a couple of years ago, kind of in the, the depths of what I was going through, I, I really, it was like a wake up call. Um, and I was like, am I in the right, am I doing the right thing with my time and my talents with this business? And it's like, we talked about, it's like, I love it. It's very creative. I think it's good for the world. Um, but I really wanted to like, think a little more deeply about like, why do I spend my time with books? And why do I think books are good for the world? Why do I think reading is good for the world? And one thing I came away with is that there's almost nothing like reading in that it requires, a, if you're reading on paper, let's start there. Um, so if you're reading a physical book, it requires you to fully pay attention while you're reading. If your mind wanders and you just keep flipping the pages, you got to go back. You didn't get anything. If your mind wanders while you're watching the movie version, you might still get something. So, so I think that's like a feature, not a flaw of printed books that they really require a hundred percent of your attention. And so I kind of went one step deeper and I thought, okay, well, that's basically a mono task. You can't multitask while you're reading. Otherwise, yeah, you're doing it wrong. So in answer to your question, I guess that's when you're doing it wrong. Do you have your phone out or somebody interrupts you from the next room? Or if you're reading while going up a, an escalator, that's probably not such a great idea. So, yeah, so I think printed books are like really good for us in that they command our attention and what they give back to us is more than what was on the pages. They strengthen our attention. And when you look at people who are really avid readers in the world, like Bill Gates, Oprah Winfrey, Warren Buffett, like there's a big overlap between the most successful people who maybe you would think have the least time to read books and them being the most successful and productive and really present in all that they do. So you know, I start the book there with reading as a monotask because I think it is a really good example of how we can give our attention to one thing and get it back even stronger. I'm curious when you were going through your cancer treatments and, and just exhausted and, and struggling, did you have a, a go-to book that you found yourself going to periodically or found to be helpful? during that time when you really needed uh, a pick-me-up, so to speak? I don't think there was one book, but it was just the act of reading. And to be honest, like I had a good amount of chemo brain while I was going through chemotherapy. And so sometimes I could only read like one little short piece in the talk of the town in the New Yorker. Right. Um, and then I was exhausted. And, but there are some books that I do come back to. I'd like to read Kurt Vonnegut books over and over again. I love Mark Twain. I love J.D. Salinger. And I started to read a little bit more like in the self-improvement space as well. So I also tell the story in the book, the reading chapter, about when I basically reached my breaking point and it corresponded to when my, my daughter was having a really hard time with anxiety, which was related to my health and the divorce and school. And one night I was just like, why don't I read to you? She didn't want to read her, her homework and we were reading My Side of the Mountain. So I read for 15 minutes or so. And it just calmed both of us down. Like we both had to be super present. I couldn't think about my work. She couldn't think about the school trip she didn't want to go on. And we both got like really into the story. And we basically repeated that every night for several weeks until we finished that book and then moved on to the next one. 
And it just like, I, th- I find that it really calms my nervous system. And it's a great way to just kind of center yourself and, and bring yourself back to the present. One of my next favorites is walking. You have this great line to open the chapter, essentially what if Henry David Thoreau had a smartphone, like would he have ever ventured, would he have to leave his phone when he ventures out in the woods? How, how can we make walking more beneficial? How can we walk in a monotask way? And just to stay on Henry David Thoreau for a second, yeah, I thought like just the image popped into my mind of like either that he leaves his phone behind and that's all he needs to do to go into the woods, build his cabin and be in nature for Walton book that he eventually wrote. Or if he brought it, would he be like taking cabin life photos and be, you know, an early influencer? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. Could go either way. Um, Pretty sure it would be the former and he'd leave his phone behind. But I think it is. I I like to go for walks. A lot of people like to go for walks. And if you go for a walk these days, depending on where you are, you might see a lot of people walking with their phones out, like looking at them, scrolling through their social media, or they might be on a phone call, or they might be, you know, snapping lots of pictures of nature. And I think all those things you have their time and place, but we just, some people multitask without thinking about it. Whereas if you really thought of walking as a monotask and you really tried to just be super present, Feel your feet on the ground, listen to the sound, sounds around you, including like leaves crunching under your feet and see how you feel. Like, can you sit with like a little bit of boredom, a little bit of curiosity about the world instead of like needing to be doing another thing at the same time? And I think those walks for me tend to be the most enjoyable. They also tend to have the secondary effect of like you relax and some ideas pop into your head. And then you could say, well, that's multitasking because you're thinking of something else. But I think it's basically how the human brain works. Like if you can quiet the noise, like some important good ideas can come in and you can just kind of acknowledge them and let them go. But they may not have had space to come to mind if you had been multitasking while you're out on your walk. So you mentioned the noise. I can't help but think of our audience, including myself, who live in an urban area, a city. Any tips for someone who wants to go walking in a more mindful, monotask way, but, you know, there's the sirens, there's the city, there are all these distractions. Yeah. I mean, I think I grew up in New York City and I think cities are fascinating and they're a source of like, you know, really interesting smells, (laughs) sights people. So I think if you bring some intellectual curiosity to your city walks, like if you don't have time to get out of the city, I think that can serve the same kind of monotasking purpose. And rather than like hiding from it by looking at our phones or listening to music, like if you really try to immerse yourself in it, I I think we just discover some things that we maybe we've numbed ourselves to. And then if you can treat yourself with a, a walk in the park, if you can do so safely. And so I mentioned in the book, like if you don't Sometimes if you feel comfortable leaving your phone behind, that's great. Other times put it on do not disturb or take someone with you, but say, we're not going to have a conversation. We're both just going to like monotask our walks. So I think there are ways to do it in an urban environment and stay safe. And then treat yourself every once in a while with a trip outside the city and come to Colorado. (laughs) I'm a city kid who lives in Colorado and loves the mountains now. So uh, I love my walks here and I also love getting back to New York and going for a walk. So listening, how do we become better listeners? Listening is super important. And it's one of the chapters that I think when early readers read the book, like they said, had the biggest impact. 
on their lives. And I think what's happened in our modern 21st century life because of our devices, like there's, and, and other factors, like it's, we've gotten used to other people not fully listening to us all the time. Like it's almost become the norm. Whereas when you can really give your full attention to someone else and they can give their attention to you, it feels different. Like it, you really feel connected and you can pick up things that maybe you didn't before. And the net effect of that is like, you can have closer relationships with your friends or your partner. You can probably be more successful at work if you're really present and not daydreaming about something else or thinking about what you have to do tomorrow or what you're going to make for dinner on your phone. So the listening I describe in the book is, is really, and I should say every chapter has an exercise or two about how you can practice monotasking. And it's all about just like getting in touch with that feeling of doing one thing at a time. The listening chapter, I describe two ways to practice it. One way is, or sorry, I should say one type of listening is with one way listening. And that would be like listening to this podcast. And can you really tune in with your full attention? Would you be able to write down what we talked about or, or somebody else talked about or university lecture or something like that afterwards? The two-way listening is all about having a conversation with a friend and really trying to bring a new level of presence to that conversation. You don't have to do it at every single conversation you have. I think it's good, like at least once a day, have a conversation as if you were recording a podcast yourself or as if your life depended on it and just see if you can kind of up your listening skills a little bit over time. How do we know if we're good? <laughs> your friends will ask to talk to you. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> you'll do better you'll, in your career. Your kids will feel more connected to you. And even if you're not telling them what they want to hear, like if you listen, I, I can just tell the difference with my kids back in that super crazy period. And still sometimes today, like I have too much going on. I have to answer an email while they're coming and asking if they can have a sleepover with a friend. If I'm, there's a big difference between doing two things at once and doing one thing at a time. So if I really stop what I'm doing, give them my attention, or if I say, come back in five minutes, you know, you'll have my attention. It just feels different. And going back to what we talked about before, like you don't feel as bad about it because like, it's your own little secret that you weren't listening and you were kind of nodding your head and participating in the conversation. You feel much better if you pay full attention and the other person feels better too. Is there something that you believe is stopping us from becoming the, the, the good listeners we, we all can be and should be? Yeah. I mean, I think our phones have a lot to do with it. I think the, the world is noisier than it ever has been before. Um, there are a lot more distractions or attention's being hijacked all the time. And I think we just have to acknowledge that and then try to strengthen what I call our monotasking muscles. And those come from like listening with your attention, reading all the monotasks that I describe in the books. Like if you practice them, you'll notice that your ability to focus and do things like listening starts to recover a little bit and strengthen. Yeah. And I think, I think it's, it's hard and I don't think anybody should feel like they, it comes naturally to them. It's just the world we live in and it's something we have to work at. So sleeping, you have a great chapter on sleeping and so many people struggle with sleep and, and sleep isn't something you can just, you know, turn on at 10 PM you can't just say, all right, it's go time and take my supplement or whatever I 
take to get to sleep. It, 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 there's sleep protocols, there's sleep etiquette. It's how you set up your bedroom, your day, the food you eat, it's everything. And you have this great kind of routine and, and set up for sleep. So can you walk us through what you do for sleep in your home and what that looks like? Yeah. And I should say, so the monotask of sleep includes not just the sleeping, kind of like what you're saying. Like, it's not just about like, oh, get to the point where you fall asleep and then sleep really hard. Like it, that doesn't really work. You can prepare during the day and that's part of the monotasking. So what I've monotasked over myself over the past few years is a lot of like little tips and tricks. One of them is building a pillow fort. <laughs> so I'm a grown adult. I love my pillow fort. And I have like super heavy pillows that wedge me in on both sides, one under my knees, and then like lighter, softer pillows under my head. So setting those up. Last night, my dog was on the bed and like took over one of the pillows. And I was like, no, that's not going to work. Um, so I had to move her to the side, make my pillow fort. And as far as like supplements and stuff, different things work for me at different times. So I just had to change what I was using last week because it wasn't working anymore. So I'm trying some melatonin myself right now, and that seems to be working. And I have other things that I do, like not eating or eating dinner, like about three hours before I go to bed, um, not drinking water after about 7 p.m. I go to bed around 9.30 and trying to keep it really dark at night. Um, trying to like minimize the amount of like wake up I do when I get up to go to the restroom in the middle of the night and never reach for my phone. Like as soon as you do that, like it just stimulates your brain, puts you in, you know, and if, if there's a text or a notification or something that's on there while you're looking at the time that could just completely wake you up and disturb your sleep. And it's really hard to get back to sleep, but there are great books out there and different things work for different people. So monotasking is just part of like doing the research, testing it out, keeping track of it the next day. We love talking about sleep. Mm -hmm. Everyone needs to sleep. It's so critical for our health and well-being. And I've talked to all sorts of sleep experts, functional medicine doctors, and I got to say the pillow fort, I've never heard before. So we, <laughs> I, I'm glad. So it's going to help someone. So I, I love that we talked about the pillow fort. That one was a new one for me. Great. Well, like maybe I can invent my pillow fort. And, uh... <laughs> Inside business. <laughs> so, so eating, um, you, a, a great chapter on eating and you talk about this in the book, but I, I'd be remiss not to talk about it here. You grew up in a, a iconic New York city restaurant. Your parents owned an iconic New York city restaurant called the Quilted Giraffe. So can you talk about that experience? I think it informs a lot about how you think about eating and the experience of eating, but let's start there and explain what the quilted giraffe, what that looked like growing up in that restaurant. So when we moved to New York city, when I was about seven years old, we lived above the restaurant. So the restaurant was originally on the first floor and we were on the third floor and, um, my parents would, my mom would sometimes call upstairs and say, Hey, Mick Jagger's here for dinner. Do you want to come down and meet him? It's actually that I have a, a record behind me that, that was signed by Mick Jagger one night at the quilted giraffe. Uh, so I rifled through my parents' albums and grabbed Let It Bleed and brought it downstairs and had them sign it. So, you know, they, my parents were kind of self-taught entrepreneurs and restaurateurs. Um, my dad was a self-taught chef. And so I grew up in like a very creative, hardworking environment. They always called me if they needed someone to work in the restaurant. And then later years, I, I wanted to work there. It was a great job. And it was kind of the pinnacle of dining in New York City in the 80s. 
they really, the restaurant operated until 1992. And they really like reinvented American cuisine. We took these research trips to various places in Europe and Asia, um, South America, where they collected all these ideas about cuisines and different bathrooms, ideas they could have for their bathroom at the restaurant in New York City. So they were just always like thinking and creating and taking notes and different influences they could have. So I think this was before the iPhone was in, ever invented. It's a long time before that. And the most high-tech thing in the restaurant was the wine list. They were very innovative and they printed out the wine list every day, like on the dot matrix printer, the little holes on the side, green and white lines. And people were like blown away by the daily wine list up to date and what was actually in the cellar. But nobody had their phones out. Nobody gave their iPads to their kids to entertain them. People were really present and it was a really like special dining experience to go there in the first place. And then especially without any distractions, like people talk to each other. People ask questions of the waiter. Then my dad would come out and talk to the customers. It was a different time. Nobody was asking for a selfie. I will say like he did have a camera and he liked to take pictures. Um, so, but that was kind of his own like artistic exploration. Yeah. I, I can't help but think I wasn't dining out in the eighties. I was a kid, but in the, in the late nineties and the two thousands in New York, you know, I didn't have a smartphone and then. I would go out to eat often. I would go to sit at the, and eat at the bar. It was like one of my favorite things to do when I was in my twenties, I'd go to any restaurant by myself, go sit at the bar and order a drink and dinner. And I would just strike up a casual conversation with the, the, the stranger next to me as I waited, waited for the menu or between drink and, and, and food arriving, or we'd go out with a bunch of friends and we would just talk and hang out. And I think about that a lot, how that, what, what I call the space in between when you go out, cause to me, that dining experience and what was, was so special back then. And I, and I think about how it's evolved and how there's a generation that won't have that same experience. They have a lot of other things, which are amazing. And especially reading your book and thinking about monotasking and, and like being a list, being a good listener and, and the art of conversation. Maybe I'm just nostalgic, but it makes me a little sad. of like that experience of going to a restaurant and look, we're guilty when we go out with our kids and it's like, all right, they just have to behave. I'll give them the iPad or the phone to watch Disney. God bless Disney plus. But what's your take on that? I think it's definitely different now. And, and I'm a little nostalgic myself, but also realistic that we are where we are. I think most of us, I don't know if we realize that we're doing it. So like right now you, you just, you don't have to be bored. You can kind of hide behind your phone. You can, you know, look up whatever you want to look up while you're waiting for your food. You can keep eating it and look at your phone. Um, but I think it's, I think it's good to learn how to not learn, but just experience being bored a little bit. I don't think it's such a bad thing. I think that boredom can then lead to striking up a conversation with somebody that you never would have talked to before and hearing a really interesting story or making a connection that you might have to the person next to you. And they might be there looking at their phone too, but they don't necessarily want to, and you don't want to. <laughs> so I think it could be a really a good thing to, to talk to people and to like live in the real world. So we're, I talk about a little bit in the book, but like everything happens in the real world. 
there's this other stuff that happens in the digital world and it's getting more complex and built out, but you're actually eating in the real world and your food was grown in the real world, wasn't grown on a phone. So the mindful eating, um, and, and the book, I don't use the term mindfulness that much throughout the book, but the, my, the eating chapter in particular, I do talk about mindful eating and and the book is very related to mindfulness. It's just, I, I made a conscious decision to frame it differently in terms of monotasking versus multitasking. But when it comes to the eating chapter, I really encourage people to think about not only what are they eating and how does it make them feel, but where did the food come from? How many people grew that and were responsible for getting it to the point where it could be purchased, cooked, put on your plate, look beautiful. Um, and then also talk a little bit about the conversations that you can have with the people around the table. Or it could be with the stranger next to you. Because I think I see it with my own kids. I see it when I go out to dinner that people, some people are there like doing it really well. <laughs> like they're having a great conversation. Their phones are nowhere in sight. And I'm like kind of jealous of that. Um, and I think, but I think we can all do it. It's not like they're, they crack the code. Like they're just, they're having fun. And when you have fun in the real world, like you don't need your phone. So, so I'm a big believer in just kind of trying to be present wherever you are. In a sense, it's, it's exactly that. It's slowing down and trying to be present. If I had to summarize your, your monotasking philosophies, is that correct? Yeah. So it's about doing one thing at a time to do everything better, which is the subtitle of the book. And the way we do that often involves slowing down. It doesn't necessarily involve doing fewer things in life. It just involves doing those things one at a time. You and I, we like to have a very full life and most people do. And so I don't think anybody should read the book or hear this and, and think, oh, well, that's going to be boring. No, it's going to be like way better <laughs> if you can bring some awareness to all the things you love to do, do them one at a time. And things might take a little bit longer. I mean, I tell people now, somebody asked me for something at work, like I might not be able to get to that for two weeks. Like I just know what my schedule is. And unless I try to multitask everything and do a, a not so great job on it, like it's going to take me some time and, and that's okay. Um, so, so yeah, so hopefully the monotasking philosophy overall, one great thing about it is that you can do it at any time. You don't have to say like, tomorrow when I wake up, I'm going to do my monotasking practice for 15 minutes, or I'm going to go to a class at the end of the day, or I'm going to go to retreat over the holidays. Like you can, whatever you're doing, you can just say, I'm going to monotask it. What five things am I doing right now or trying to do? Can I break them apart and do one of them and just monotask it? So you can kind of call upon monotasking wherever you are. And what do you think is the, the biggest pitfall for, you know, myself and I think a lot of our listeners are in, in, in you too, you know, we're, we're type A's, we like goal setting, we like accomplishing our goals. So we're passionate, we work hard. And so sometimes maybe slowing down, sometimes just focusing on one thing when I've got kids and family and work and all this coming at me at once, especially so many people are working remotely. I'm on zoom and someone's pinging me on Slack and then there's a text and what, what, yeah. Are there any pitfalls you see in our environment today or, or any advice who, for someone who's just kind of 
struggling to, to keep it together and really embrace your philosophy. One thing I've been thinking about a lot is the idea that you, I'm never going to get everything done on my to-do list if I try to just do it all. The only way I'm really going to accomplish what I want to get done in life is if I come up with a more sustainable approach. It's more balanced between working hard and like replenishing myself and not getting into these like periods of exhaustion and burnout that take longer to recover from than if I had just slowed myself down to begin with and just methodically worked my way through things one at a time and did a good job at them. So, so I think people, so people like just think that like the problem is I'm not working hard enough. Problem is if I haven't, you know, learned all these productivity methods or found the right one or taken the right supplement or all this, like there, there's this search kind of for external answers when I think we're the ones that know best how our brains work and how we feel. And if we can live in the present moment and do one thing at a time, we'll end up being more successful, more creative, more present, more connected. Um, so, and it just, it's like a building block. You got to start somewhere. It's not like an overnight magic wand. So see if you can monotask one thing. And then by monotasking that thing, can you like build your monotasking muscles to monotask other things? And one recommendation I have is, is to read a little bit every day. Like could be five minutes, could be 20 minutes, like I talk about in the book. But if you read, like you'll find that your ability to pay attention and resist distractions. Like that's another big part of this. Like, so your attention's not ping-ponging around all the time. You'll be able to identify like, oh, they're just trying to distract me. That advertiser, that notification, that app, that person. And then you'll like have these stronger muscles to say, I'm not going to go for it. Like I'm going to stay focused on what I want to get done. Not that thing that they're trying to get my attention. Text messages are the worst, right? For distractions. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, yeah, I mean, there's so many distractions that come out of our phone. It's amazing. But just because like you decide to monotask and pay attention doesn't mean everybody else can like stop texting you. Right. So, <laughs> and it doesn't mean that you have to respond to every task text. Like you could decide to monotask that text, say like, oh, I'm going to put down what I'm doing. And they engage in that conversation. Or you could say, no, I'm going to keep monotasking this presentation I'm doing for work and I'm going to respond three hours from now. And if they're a good friend, I mean, it's like different, obviously, if it's an emergency. Um, but if they're a good friend, like they'll value the fact that you give them your full attention three hours from now. I love that. And so in closing, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice when you're exhausted you're going through chemo, j just that rough period, you could go back and give yourself advice during that period. What would it be? Slow down, get more sleep, get the rest that you need. People told me I didn't listen and, um, you know, wish that I did. It wouldn't have, I mean, maybe it wouldn't have taken as long to recover from and maybe I would have, you know, had the energy and the reserves to, to get through some stuff that I had no idea was coming after that. So, yeah. So I think it's just super important to this approach life is it's not a sprint. It's you, there's life keeps happening. You're going to you know need your cognitive skills, your energy, your presence, 
everything that you bring to the table, you're going to need it. And it's make sure you live life in a very sustainable way. Well said, Thatcher, thank you so much. Thank you. So great talking to you.